Well, a couple of weeks ago, we started our sermon series in Ecclesiastes. And as we said, Koheleth, uh, as it begins in chapter 1, the words of the teacher, the Koheleth, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, and he talks about Hevel, Hevelim, futility, meaninglessness, that everything that Koheleth, the leader of the assembly, he looks out and he's done all of these things in life. He's done all these different projects. He's had all of these different aspirations. He's accumulated stuff. He's hoarded things. And as we said last week, it's when you start off with a twisted outlook, Kohela said that it's God is giving us this meaningless task of life, that we could just squeak a little bit of joy. We could eke something out. Maybe we could get a little bit of a smile. We could enjoy just a moment of pleasure. That when that's your outlook then it turns into twisted outcomes. That's the byproduct of it. Today as we preach, as the word is preached in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, the title of today's sermon is Plight or Privilege. See, because you can look at something and it completely depends on your outlook. There's a time for everything. And you can look at all of those different things and you could come to this, you could come to this determination that everything, like Koheleth has determined, everything's meaningless. God has established some stuff, yeah, but still, at the end of the day, it's all meaningless. Or, we could come to a completely different outlook. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I want to read this, because I think this is the crux, the pivot point. And this is where we're going to spend our time today. He, God, has established everything as beautiful in its time. Moreover, he has set eternity in their hearts, so that man cannot discover the workmanship God established from beginning to end. That's Ecclesiastes 3.11. Do y'all realize that throughout Scripture, or throughout history, that Scripture has been weaponized? Do y'all realize that? I don't see a whole lot of... Do y'all realize that throughout history that Scripture has been weaponized? That people have used Scripture to accomplish their own agendas? It's been weaponized. It's been ripped from context. It's been twisted and perverted to justify, legitimize some of the most heinous, deplorable, dark, and disgusting acts in history. It's been used to justify child abuse. Don't spare the rod from your child. Well, that means God wants me to abuse my child. Wrong. It's been used to justify child marriage. It's been used by some churches to protest funerals. It's been used by some to justify holy wars, quote-unquote holy wars. It's been used by some to justify abortion and divorce. It was used by one twisted individual named Hitler to justify a holocaust and the slaughter of millions of Jews. Tom said just a moment ago that uh, the author of Amazing Grace... He was a captain of a slave ship. That scripture was actually used, rent from its context, to justify slavery. It's been used to justify genocide and murder. You see, there's a time, scripture says, to give birth. And I believe that it's the appropriate time for that is to give birth by the Spirit. There's a time to die, and that's the time to die to self. There's a time to plant, and that's to plant the seed of the gospel. There's a time to uproot. There's a time to uproot the sin in your own life. 
There's a time to kill. There is a time to kill. To kill the selfish desires within that we were made in the image and the likeness of God, but rather than glorify Him, we rebelled in Adam. God gives us an opportunity to kill those selfish desires, to be born again in Christ. There's a time to heal in Christ. There's a time to tear down. There's a time to tear down the facade of coexistence and equality, and everything leads to the same God. It's false. There's a time to build. There is a time to build. There's a time to build on the plan and the providence of God and the rock that is Jesus Christ. There's a time to weep. There is a time to weep. There's a time to weep for the lost, to be broken, because when you know him, you realize that there was a time in your life when you were out there, and you were desperate, and yet the light of the gospel is shown in your life. There's a time to laugh. It's Proverbs 31, woman. There's a time to laugh at Satan's schemes because we're not unaware of them. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to mourn our brothers and sisters, saints and martyrs in faith. There's a time to dance. There is a time to dance in celebration of victory in Christ as King David did. There's a time to cast stones. The stones that weigh us down of addiction and codependency... There's a time to cast those things at the foot of the cross and leave them there. There's a time to gather. There is a time to gather. That's the word that we get, ecclesia, ecclesiastes, to gather together. There's a time to gather together and to be built as living stones into the bride and the body of Christ. There is a time to gather. There's a time to embrace. There's a time to embrace the gospel as the truth objective truth of God, not subjective. What does it mean to me? There's a time to break away from the lies told by Satan, the accuser, the enemy. There's a time to search, to search for the light and the truth of life. There's a time to count as lost the pursuits and the pattern of this world. There's a time to keep watch. That's that Hebrew verb shamar, in Genesis chapter 2 that we've said that God dedicated the man in the Garden of Eden to abide, to minister, to serve, and to shamar, to watch over. There is a time to keep watch, to be diligent in prayer and in ministry. There's a time to abandon. There is a time to abandon our rebellion, our selfishness. Jesus said that if you want to be my disciple, that you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. There's a time to tear. There is a time to tear. Jesus tore the veil in the temple, giving access to everyone that would put their faith in him. There's a time to sow, sow the seeds of the gospel. There's a time to be silent. Rather than ruin our testimony that we learn in self-discipline when to keep our mouths shut, and there's a time to speak. There's always a time to speak hope, and truth and light and life into the lives of those who don't know Jesus. There's even a time to encourage those who are brothers and sisters. There's a time to love, to love the lost, the deluded, the disillusioned, because that's what we once were. There's a time to hate. There's a time to hate the consequences of sin. 
There's a time for war because, as Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. There is a time for war. There's a time for peace. There's a time for peace that we have security in our identity in him. See, when we read Ecclesiastes verses 1 through 8, People can use those to justify a whole lot of things. Oh, well, I'm going to have my own private war over here. I've got my own little agenda. I'm going to accomplish this thing. And that's not it. See, Koheleth listed a bunch of what's. He listed a bunch of what's, but why? As we've talked about for the last couple of weeks, why are you doing the things that you're doing? In verse 9, Kohelis says, what does the worker gain? What's in it for me, God? What can I get out of this? What's in it for me? See, that's the wrong question, and it's the wrong outlook. And as we looked at in chapter 2, it led to grief, and it led to despair. And the person who was the leader of the assembly led Israel down a path of lostness and depravity until eventually... Foreigners came in, destroyed the temple, and led them into exile. But we have a greater king, amen? We have a greater king in Jesus Christ who doesn't lead us astray. He leads us through the cross, making a way for us to go home to the Father in heaven where he's gone to prepare a place for us. See, a twisted outlook leads to twisted outcomes, Verse 10, he says, I've seen the affliction, I've seen the travail, I've seen the plight that God has laid on humanity. I've seen it. That's what Kohela says. But Scripture, being perfect in what it is, God gives us a little bit different outlook. Let's look at verse 11 for just a few minutes. God has established everything beautiful in its time. You have people that say, well, if everything's beautiful, then why is the world that we live in so messed up? Do you all realize that God didn't pervert it? That's us. We did that. We did that. And yet we want to blame it on God. We want to say... If God was really God, why is there evil in the world? Well, it's because we're in the world. And if God were to eradicate all evil, that would mean he'd have to take us out. And that's not part of his plan of redemption. Someday, that's going to happen. See, what he does, in between then and now, he's redeeming all things in Christ Jesus. God has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has set eternity in our hearts. Do you all realize that that's something that differentiates us from every other animal, every other creature, everything else in all of creation? Stars don't sit there and say, oh, I just, I just long for eternity. I wonder, I wonder what's going to happen to me when I burn out. Animals don't sit there and ponder it. It's human beings those of us that uniquely have been created in the image and likeness of God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. He's made us to be eternally relational, and he's put eternity in our hearts. I remember before I was saved, in my early 30s, 
And one time I was reading through Scripture, sort of like the, the eunuch that didn't understand it, and I'm reading through Scripture, and I come to Ecclesiastes, and I came to this part, and I said, God has placed eternity in the hearts of men, but man cannot discover what God has done from beginning to end. And I was like, you know, that's true. God has put eternity in our hearts. Koheleth, the one who, to this point, hasn't really spoken a whole lot of wisdom, a couple of times that the truth and the reality of who God is, it still comes out. It still comes out despite the fact that he's got a, a twisted outlook and he's trying to accomplish things through twisted methodology and he's accomplishing things, the outcome is twisted, that he's still speaking by the direction of God because all scripture is theopneustos. It's all God-breathed and God has a reason and intention for using Koheleth to put it here. And as we said, the Ecclesiastes may be difficult but you can't take it like the sweater, the tie that you got from somebody who's a family member, and you can't just throw it out. It's part of Scripture. We've got to wrestle with it. We've got to understand it. We can't give it a superficial treatment. God has set eternity in our hearts. I'm going to read verses 17 through 22, and then I'm going to come back and explain a little bit. See, Kohelis' outlook isn't really that great. In verse 17... Still in chapter 3. I, this is Kohelis, said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. That's true. Since there is a time for every, every activity and every work. That's true. I said to myself, this happens concerning people so that God may test them and they may see for themselves that they are like the animals. They're like the animals? Hmm. For the fate of people and the fate of animals is the same. Hmm. The fate of people and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. We all have the same breath. Do you all remember in Genesis when God picked up the man that he had formed from the dirt and he breathed life into him? Do y'all ever remember reading anywhere that God did that with a cow or a giraffe or a hippopotamus or a platypus? It was only man. His breath. The fate of people and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. See, when you start out with a twisted outlook, you land on twisted outcomes. All are going to the same place, it says in verse 20. All come from dust, and all return to dust. Who knows if the spirit of people rises upwards? The leader of the assembly. Who knows if the spirit of man goes somewhere other than the spirit of animals? You should know. You should know, leader of the assembly. You should know that the spirit of man, that we being created in the image and likeness of God, that we are beings, that God has placed eternity in our hearts. Why? See, he said it, but he doesn't understand it. He knows the what, but he doesn't know the why. Who knows? You should know. Because if you did what God called the king to do, and you read the book of the law, and you studied it, and you meditated on it, you wouldn't have collected all those wives. You wouldn't have collected all of those piles of gold and silver. 
You wouldn't have gone out and done all of these projects for me, myself, I did, I accomplished, I wanted. You wouldn't have done all those things because God said back in Deuteronomy, those aren't the things that the king does. You don't do those things. Who knows? You should know. Now you should know. You should know. There's a difference between animals and human beings. There's a difference in our breath. There's a difference in our fate. You should know because God has placed eternity in our hearts. But why? See, Koheleth lands on the place that it's a plight, that God has laid this ana, this plight on our hearts, this burdensome task, this travail. But he doesn't understand why. He's already made his determination. And the reason why God has made everything beautiful in its time is because when we make the decision to glorify God in all things, He's the why. Everything that we do, everything that we experience, every circumstance, every struggle, if your mom is dying of cancer, if your dad is suffering because of his broken shoulder, if you're not sure whether or not the church really loves you, if you're wondering if because of something that you've done in your past, see, there's a time for everything. And you can look at it and you can say, I don't really want to buy into that. And you can side with Koheleth and you can say, you know what, I'm going to have this twisted outlook because it's really about me. It's really about what I want. It's about my joy. It's about my satisfaction. So therefore, I've deduced that there's nothing better in life than for me to get a little something, something. Have a little sip of wine, do a little bit of drugs, maybe drink some alcohol. Just kind of enjoy the day. Maybe look at things that I shouldn't look at because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Right? Wrong. Koheleth, the leader of the assembly, wrong. God has placed eternity in our hearts because we can either convert it, we can see it, we can have an outlook that it's a plight that God has put on us, a plague, this travail, this burdensome task that's for no real reason because we're just going to end up in the dirt with the animals, or we can own it. Say, that was my rebellion in the garden. That was me in Adam. I'm the one who looked at God, the Almighty Creator, and I said, I don't want what you think's best for me. I want what I want's best for me. I'm going to go out and I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to neglect my wife. Wife, I'm going to neglect my husband. I'm going to listen to the serpent. I'm going to strive for that thing that on the surface it looks really good, but then when I bite into it, the thing that God has said, don't go there, I'm going to realize that I'm naked and I'm riddled with grief, and then I'm riddled with shame. Rather than come to God and say, I admit I'm riddled with sin, God, that I was born, I was created, I was conceived in my mother's womb in sin. Because I was there somehow with Adam in the garden, and I was wrong. And I want to get down on my knees, and I want to say, I'm sorry. That's who I am, and that's what I want to be. But we don't want to go there. We want to be with Koheleth and we want to say, I just want to squeak out a little bit of something for today. 
And it leads us to this twisted, perverted view on life. See, God has placed eternity in the hearts of humanity so that, so that what? What's that there for? Ask yourself, what's that there for? It goes on to say that man, man alone, cannot discover the workmanship. As I was studying this week, I looked at that, that word in the, in the Hebrew, and as I was looking at it, some of the, some of the words, that, the synonyms that go along with it were things like craftsmanship and workmanship, sculptures, that God's work that he's established, this beautiful thing that God has done. And it made me think of Ephesians 2.10. For we, we are God's poema. And I said, wouldn't that be cool if that was the same word? And it turns out that if you go to the Greek Septuagint, when they took the Hebrew and they translated it into Greek, that it is. That that word is poema. That it means exactly that. It means that man alone cannot discover the workmanship, the poema, the beauty of what it is, the intricacy of what's going on, that what it is that God has planned, what he's established, what he's perfected, to affect salvation from beginning to end. You go to an atheist and you talk to them and you say, explain to me why it is that we're here. Evolution. You know, we were these one-celled things that somehow multiplied and we turned into reptiles, it turned into mammals, it... That doesn't really inspire a whole lot in me. Where are we going? What's the goal? So when I die that my kid can have wings? Or he can have antennas on his head? Or he can have another sense? So that what? What's the end goal? We evolve, we evolve. By the way, it's not evident out there in creation that evolution is really a thing. That's why they call it evolutionary theory. It's not a fact. But why? That's the question that we have to keep asking. Why? If that were even a thing, which isn't, why is it? Where are you going? Why has God established eternity in the hearts of men? Why? See, that when we're lost and we're outside of the Garden of Eden and we're separated from God so that... Man cannot discover the workmanship on his own. No matter what it is that you engage in, no matter what kind of thing that you try to satisfy yourself with, just like Kohela said, that the streams are running down, but they're never empty. They run down into the ocean, but the oceans are never full. The eyes are always seeing, but they're never satisfied. Our ears are always hearing. But after we hear that song... I want to hear it again. I want to hear something else. We're never satisfied until Christ. Amen? See, because when you really know him, when he erupts into your life and he strips all that stuff away, you sit there like Paul and you say, I've counted all things lost because I have gain in Christ. And now, all of the things that seemed absurd to me in my life before, now that I know him, I don't have to chase anything else. I'm denying myself, I'm picking up my cross, 
and I'm following you, Lord, because there's not satisfaction in anything else. There is no satisfaction in anything else. And God did that. He established eternity in our hearts so that man alone could not discover the workmanship that God has perfected from beginning to end. See, everything is perfect in its time to affect the redemption of humanity in Christ. Everything. Koheleth, for this brief moment, it seems like he's come above the clouds and this beauty of what it is that God has seen and what God is articulating through him, it comes out and he goes back and he says, I know there's nothing better for them. He doesn't even qualify himself as a human being. There's nothing better for, for them, those people out there. There's nothing better for them. God has given them I know there's nothing better for them than to rejoice and enjoy the good life. It's the gift of God whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys. It is. But it's still dependent upon your outlook. I can be satisfied in what I eat and what I drink knowing that it's provision from God. Or I can just sit there and I can say, well, this is the little scrap that God has thrown out. And then you come to the New Testament and the woman says that Jesus, they're talking about the disciples say that it's like, well, we're only supposed to minister to, to the Jews. And the woman comes along and Jesus says, this is only, uh, this is only for the Jews. They're my, they're my first priority. And she said, yeah, but, but even, even the scraps that fall off the table, Jesus, ah, oh, you got it. Somebody understands. See that the smallest scrap that falls off of God's table is an eternal abundance. The storehouse doors are thrown open and the manna from God comes down and it satisfies. And we find that nowhere else. Koheleth didn't. He goes on to say, I know that all that God does will last forever. There's no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that people will be in awe of him. Whatever is has already been. Whatever will be already is. God repeats what is past. See, God establishes all things as beautiful in its time. So you could take that whole introductory section, there's a time for all those things, and we could turn them and we could pervert them as it's been done in the history of humanity. We could twist all those things for our personal agendas and we can justify, it's okay. It's okay if I do this thing over here, right? It's okay if I have an inappropriate relationship outside of the context of marriage because that's what culture says is okay now today. Come on, mom and dad. You know, it's almost, you know, 2020. This isn't the 1950s anymore. It's not Ward Cleaver, right? This isn't a black and white film. We weren't doing it because Ward Cleaver said it was the right thing to do. We're doing it because that's what God said was the right thing to do. And he established it beautiful in its time. I guarantee anyone who's ever done that outside of marriage, that there's nothing redeeming about it that comes into the marriage. You may have a child outside of the context of marriage, and God makes that a beautiful human being. But the act itself... 
Does that mean that it's like, oh, well, I should go ahead and do those things because God's going to redeem them? He does do them. He does redeem all things. But that doesn't mean that we're willfully disobedient to what his desire is. He makes all things beautiful in their time, despite our sin. He establishes all things as beautiful to effect salvation, to redeem the lost, and to reveal his love and his grace and his mercy. In order, New Testament, that in the coming ages he might show the uncomparable, the surpassing riches of his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Plight or privilege? Plight or privilege? What's your outlook on life? So you can come to a place where you can sit there and you can look and you can say, well, I'm just going to try and squeak something out tomorrow. I'm just going to try and kind of wring tomorrow out and just get that one drop of joy. Just try and get that, that five, ten minutes of, of, of downtime, of me time, so I can enjoy that candy bar, so that I can enjoy that TV show for me. You know, I'll put my headphones on. I'll tune out the family. Everybody's gone. Those kids are back in school. Thank you, Lord. Your children are your ministry. Or is it a privilege? Because God has made everything beautiful in its time. If you're looking up there at that slide and you say, well, Pastor, you made a, you made a typo. It's not everything in his time. It's everything in its time. It is everything beautiful in his time. See, because it is his time, everything belongs to him. Not only the what, not only the how, not only the why, but the when. He's established when you were going to walk on the face of this earth. He established the day that you were born and he's established the day that you're going to pass. What are you going to do with the dash, that time in between? Let's pray together.